Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's a great joy to be here again to share with you. Uh, hopefully it won't take too long. That's my fear this morning. As I've prepared this message, I might run over, but we'll do our best. Um, let me just read the Word of God to you then as we begin. Um, our readings found in Romans chapter 4, and I'm reading from verse 9 um, to the end of the chapter. Uh, Romans chapter 4 from verse 9. And the context is we've just been speaking about the blessings of the gospel. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only, or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. For he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, in order that righteousness might be imputed to them also, and the father of circumcision to those who are not only of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if, if it is those who are of the law who are heirs, faith is made void and the promise of no effect. Because the law brings about wrath, for where there is no law, there is no tran transgression. Therefore it is a faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. In the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they're dead, who contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but he was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform, and therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now it was, written, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Well, I trust that God will bless to us the reading of his word. That's not the most easy passage, is it? You might be thinking, what the heck's going on? Um, hopefully we'll be able to dig a bit deeper and I'll be able to explain it to you. So we're moving into the second half of Romans chapter 4 and um, Paul's message, if you like, his subject has not changed one bit. It's all about the gospel of God's grace. Paul in his letter to the Romans just can't get enough of the gospel. He goes on and on and on about the gospel. See, the gospel wasn't something Paul just believed at the start of his Christian life and then, you know, put it on the shelf for the more mature truth to come along. No, the gospel was and always will be the power of God to salvation. It remains for us God's highest wisdom uh, for us to grapple with, it is the lens of truth, it is the thing through which we understand everything else. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. 
And we're never going to get over just how great God's love for us in this gospel is. We're going to grapple with it both in this world and in the world to come. Even in eternity, we're still singing about the gospel. You see that in Revelation 5. Um, The saints sing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. We never move on, not in time, not in eternity, from the Lamb who was slain. We never graduate from the gospel. And it's the gospel we come to consider together this morning. Uh, Last week, we looked at the lives of Abraham, the lives of David, and we saw that they themselves were saved by the same grace we are. The same mercy which we're saved by was the same hope of both David and Abraham. Grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. Saved by the precious promises of the gospel. Now as Paul's just shared in Romans 4, uh, we can imagine his readers have got a few questions. He's made some very big calls um, in, in Romans 4 about how we're saved. Uh, particularly those from a Jewish background might struggle with this idea of salvation entirely by grace. And perhaps they would have been thinking to themselves, now, Paul, you say that Abraham and David were saved by faith alone. Okay, but what about the rest of the Old Testament? And what about that all-important ritual of circumcision? And what about the holy and glorious law which God gave to his people on Mount Sinai? Are you trying to tell me that that doesn't contribute anything to our salvation, that it really is, as you've just told us, a free gift? Maybe you've had such thoughts yourself. It's something Christians continue to grapple with, isn't it? So if you thought about these things, you wouldn't be the first and you won't be the last. And the idea that salvation was a free gift, not by rules, not by rituals, it was something that Paul and the other apostles would fight all the way through their ministries. They would have to come back to it again and again and again. And this issue of the freeness of the gospel, it reaches a peak, if you like, in Acts chapter 15. The apostles had to call together a church meeting, the first church council, um, in Acts chapter 15. And they thrashed out this issue of the gospel. And this is what um, the apostles said about what was going on. They said these words in Acts 15, 24. We have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls. And they were saying this. This was their false message. You must be circumcised and keep the law. So false teachers had come in and they said, yeah, believing in Jesus, that's all good. But you need a little bit of circumcision and a bit of law keeping to top you up on the way to heaven. To have a real relationship with God. And the apostles were quite clear in that same verse. They said, to whom we gave no such commandment. That was... People speaking in the flesh, it wasn't what the apostles thought of the gospel, and it isn't what we believe and teach here. And the same questions, if you like, the same objections which were uh, thrown at the gospel then are the ones which Paul will address in this half of Romans chapter 4. And and just as a clear answer was given from um, the Jerusalem council, I hope that I can give you a clear answer this morning. And the big point is going to be this. That salvation is not by rituals or rules, but is by the righteousness of faith. Not by a ritual or rules, but rather righteousness of faith. So there's three R's for you to remember. So that's just a helpful little tool in your head. Ritual, rules, and the righteousness by faith. Uh, So let's look firstly at rituals. Rituals. Um, At the start of chapter 4, Paul's just dropped the atomic bomb on those who think that salvation is God's reward for a life well lived. And we read that amazing verse in verse 5. And now to him who does not work, 
but trust him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted for righteousness. And now that the bomb's been dropped, that the cat's been let out of the bag, Paul anticipates there's going to be some fallout. There's going to be some shockwaves from the blast. There's going to be some rubble to clear away and some questions which have to be answered, particularly to his Jewish friends who might be listening at the congregation at Rome as this is read. So he asks a logical question for us in verse 9. He says, does this blessedness, this right standing with God, this friendship with God, does this blessedness apply to the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. Now, if you'd been, been listening to Paul, that's a good question to ask. He's talked about Abraham being God's friend, his faith accounting him righteous, this relationship he has with God. And he's never mentioned the C word even once. All this talk of blessing and relationship and no mention of circumcision. To a Jew, that would have been deeply disturbing. For a Jew, circumcision was the very pathway into a relationship with God. And now Paul's saying that you can be friends with God without that. It's a pretty big deal for them. And we, of course, here in, in these New Testament days, we understand why it's not mentioned. Because circumcision doesn't have anything to do Anything at all with how you are saved and made righteous before God. But in their minds, oh, it would have been a shocking thing for Paul to share. So in order to illustrate this more clearly, Paul's going to go and show them the timing of when Abraham was saved. He wants to draw attention to the time when he received the blessings from God. At what point in time was it? Was it before he was circumcised or was it after? Uh, verse 10 reads this way. How then was righteousness accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? And the answer comes loud and clear. Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. It's real simple for us, but it would have been shocking for them. So here we have Abraham. He's, he's, he's righteous before God. He's a friend of God. Before circumcision was even mentioned. And that teaches us an important truth for us here today. A right relationship with God comes through faith in Jesus Christ before any ritual you do before, before any ritual which happens after. It comes as a free gift by faith. It's not by holiness, obedience, or service that it comes to you. It is through faith alone. And that's a great point for us, isn't it? That's a great point for us to think about. Um, all the men here, I'm sure, are saying, Amen. <laughs> you know, we don't want to be circumcised. We're happy that it's by grace and not through this ritual. So what was the point of circumcision then? Well, circumcision was simply a picture of how Abraham was to live after, as this newly saved person. He was to cut off uncleanness and, and live a holy and separate life, just as we're to live holy and separate to the Lord. Well, you see this clearly in verse 11. It said, he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised. While still uncircumcised. That's when he received the promise. And so he left us a pattern. It says in verse 11 that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are not circumcised, in order that righteousness might be imputed to them also. So he becomes a pattern for us as Gentile believers. All of us get to keep our stuff intact and we can still be forgiven by God. That's good news for all the guys here, isn't it? We all say amen, we rejoice in this doctrine. 
But what about those who have gone under the knife? What about those who've, um, who've become circumcised? What does Abraham's example speak to them? Uh, verse 12 says this. It says, Abraham becomes the father of, cir- of the circumcised, not only to those who are of the circumcision, but also to those who walk in the steps of the faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. So to those who are circumcised, Abraham's example shows them something very, very important. It shows them that circumcision and relationship are not the same thing. Ritual does not equal relationship. So Abraham's example, it calls those who are Jewish, who have that heritage, it calls them to more. It says don't just have the outward sign, have the inward reality. Not just the circumcision of the flesh, but the circumcision of the heart. That's what it calls them to. So in conclusion then, circumcision will not help you out at all in your relationship with God. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, was anyone um, called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Not sure how that would happen. Uh, Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. And again in Galatians 6, for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. In other words, this isn't something which is going to put you in favor with God or out of favor with God. And you might think this morning, especially if you're visiting, what on earth is Luke talking about? Why has he been talking about foreskin all morning? How many, of, how many of you in this room who are guys have been tempted to look at your stuff and decide from that if you are spiritual or not? It's not, a, it's not a temptation which we really have in this day and age. But it was an issue for the Jews. There's a lot of women in the room. How does this speak to them? What can we take away from the truth in this passage? I think the main thing would be this. If you want to be friends with God, you don't need any rituals However good and helpful those rituals might be, you don't need them to put you in a right relationship with Jesus. You might not have had a religious upbringing. You might not have been baptized as a baby or anointed with the anointing oil at your confirmation later on, as the Anglicans do. And none of that actually matters. You too can share in the blessings of Abraham, the blessings of the gospel through faith alone. And when you believe you're as much a child of God as anyone, you don't have to have this big history of Christian background or ritual. It comes to you freely and you're a full son of God the moment you trust in him, period. But another takeaway point from circumcision is this. Uh, perhaps you've grown up around rituals, spiritual things, lots of good, of good habits maybe your parents or grandparents had. And maybe you've been brought up in a Christian family Maybe you've gone to church all your life. Maybe it was an expectation in your home country that you would be at church. Maybe you've even been baptized, that great new covenant sign. Well, I want to say this to you. All your ritual is not enough. It's not enough. It doesn't count for anything. Jesus' sacrifice is what matters. You can have all the ritual in the world and no reality to back it up. If you look in the Gospel of Matthew, you'll see this is what John the Baptist was dealing with. Um, The scribes and the Pharisees, they um, considered themselves the children of Abraham, and they came to be baptized by John. And this is how it went down in um, in Matthew chapter 3. But when John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come into his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, 
who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. So what John was saying is you can have all the ritual and not the reality. Uh, So let me ask you a question then this morning. Do you share Abraham's faith? Or are you trusting in your Christian upbringing or some other strange ritual to make you right with God? Have you come to that place of trust in him? You know, this passage says to us, if you don't have ritual, don't worry about it. If, if all you have is ritual, don't settle for less than God is offering you in the gospel. Don't settle for ritual when you can have reality. So that's Paul's first point about circumcision. We'll be moving on from that stuff now. Um, our points are going to be a little bit different, but they are connected. And we've seen that ritual can't serve us. And now let's take a look at rules. Rules. Paul's going to address now another scruple people have with the gospel, and this would be much more common than people worrying about circumcision. You know, people would say, okay, we get that, that was a ritual, that was for Israel, yet we understand that, but surely, surely obedience to God's moral law given to Moses on Mount Sinai in thunder and smoke, and oh, it was awesome, wasn't it? Surely that plays a role in getting us right with God. How could God accept us, you know, without our own human efforts and without a sincere, holy obedience to his law? How can that happen, Paul? That just doesn't make sense that you would seem, it seems like you've thrown that out of the window, as was often accused of Paul. But Paul is clear, he doesn't back down at all, that's showing that through Abraham, salvation was always by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Have a look at verse 13 with me. It says, for the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. It wasn't through the law, but it was through faith. Now, there are very, two very important principles at work as you read the scriptures. You know, you go through the Bible, there is a law and there is a gospel, and, and these are two separate things, things which have to be kept in their proper place. They're not enemies of one another. You know, a lot of the creeds say they sweetly complement one another, but they are different principles. The law says, do this and you will live. The gospel says, Jesus has done this so you can live. The blessings of the law are conditional upon obedience. The blessings of the gospel are conditional upon faith. The law is a list of rules to be obeyed. The gospel is good news to be believed. The law is the ministry of death. The gospel is the ministry of life or the ministry of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 3. The law shows you your sin and points out that you're condemned. The gospel shows you Jesus and says, here is your salvation. So they work together as a perfect tag team. They're not enemies. You know, they are intricately connected and when we become Christians, God writes his law in our hearts, so we're going back there to do it, you know, to do it in some sense to make a better stab of it. So they work in perfect harmony, but they are different. And in the case of Abraham's salvation, the law did not play a role. It was by faith alone. Otherwise, salvation wouldn't be a gift, it would be a reward for good behavior. This is um, Paul's point in verse 14. He says, for if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. 
And Paul makes this same point. You know, you could actually just take this passage. You could read the book of Galatians alongside it and you get a good picture of what's going on. And Galatians chapter 2 tells us, The law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. The law is not the same as the promise. It doesn't say, here's good news, believe it. It says, here's a good way to live, do it or else. So there's a big difference between the law and the gospel. The law brings about an awareness of sin. Look in verse 15. It says, the law brings about wrath. So it brings about an awareness of sin. It underlines our transgressions. It didn't help out Abraham one tiny bit. In fact, it came 430 years after, so it couldn't have have played a role, could it? Have a read in Galatians 3 and verse 17. It says, what I mean is this. I'm glad when Paul says that sometimes. What I'm trying to get at is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God gave it to Abraham through a promise. Through the promise and not through your obedience. And you think, yep, you've drummed that into my head enough now. I kind of get it. But do you really get it? Because I understand it, but it's much more difficult for it to sink into the heart, isn't it? It's one thing to know it in the head, but it's another thing to to feel it and experience every moment of your life. Because this gospel goes against everything you are taught in the world. And the gospel of the world says, God loves a trier, just do your best and you'll be sweet. Satan himself is happy for you to believe that kind of gospel. Pull your boots up and, and get stuck in. Because if you don't, you're going to hell. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. No, no, don't do that. Don't trust Jesus exclusively for your salvation. You've got to have some effort as well. That's just reckless to not have that human effort. Why would you do that? Well, it might sound reckless, but that is the only gospel there is. The gospel of God's free grace. And we must correctly divide the law and the gospel. And Martin Luther said this. I quoted him last week, one of the church fathers. He said, we must pay great attention to these things. For with good reason, we can say that ignorance of this distinction between the law and the gospel is one of the principal sources of the abuses which corrupt and still corrupt Christianity. So faith is not a trying, it is a trusting. It is a resting in what Jesus has done and will do on your behalf. It's not by the works of the law, but by the believing of faith. And that's an easy thing to grasp, but it's a hard thing as well. I'm going to pinch an illustration now I heard from uh, Meredith during the lockdown when she did the kids' work. And she told a story. There was a guy who was um, a bit of a tightrope walker. And um, he walked over the tightrope, no safety nets or anything. And he had a big uh, wheelbarrow full of bricks and heavy goods. And he stumbled across his tightrope. And everyone was amazed. Wow, that was real heavy, that load he took through there. And they were all cheering him on and... You know, been really stoked at what he'd done. And he said, do you reckon I could take a person across this line? And everyone said, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, we reckon you could. And he said, can I have a volunteer from the audience to get in the wheelbarrow? And of course, people went a little bit quieter after that. And that's what trusting Jesus is like. It's like getting into the wheelbarrow with him. You let go of the situation. You let go of your own human control. And you give yourself over to the skill and the wisdom of someone else. 
And unlike the man with the wheelbarrow, I'm not sure what happened to him, maybe he fell off one day. Jesus never falls off. He never loses those who put their trust in him. He's able to save to the uttermost all who come to God through him. Whoever comes into the palm of his hand will never be lost, will never be cast out. He is able to serve. So we've seen that ritual can't serve us. We've seen the rules don't get us any closer. Now let's take a look at Abraham's faith together. And we are kind of repeating ourselves because Paul just wants to drill it into our minds. We've seen the ritual and the rules. And now let's look at the righteousness of faith. The righteousness of faith. Uh, so Paul's shown us two dead-end roads to find salvation. And now he's going to explain that salvation is all of grace from first to last. He's going to explain to us what Abraham's faith was and how we should copy that faith. Um, in light of what he's just been saying, he says these words in, in verse 16. He says, Therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. And, and Paul's point is this. Because the gospel comes to us through a promise, a promise of grace, it is a certain promise. It's just as we read there, it is sure to all the seed. It is a true and certain promise of salvation to every single person who believes it. Now, if this salvation was conditional upon your faith and your obedience, how would you ever know that you had done enough? What would be the pass mark? Because you won't find one in Scripture except the perfection of Jesus Christ. How much obedience would you really need to give God if it was a team effort? Would 60% be all right? 85%, maybe 20% if you're a bit looser? If it were not by grace, how could you have any assurance of acceptance with God? But praise God, it is by His grace. It is a free gift so you can have the sure and certain hope of eternal life. And we see this through the example of Abraham. You think how many reasons he had to doubt God's promise. God promised Abraham a son and that from him there would be a nation. That nation would be given a land and then eventually through his offspring, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, would be born and come and save his people. Even just the first part of that promise is hard to believe, isn't it? That he's going to have a son. He's nearly a hundred years old. It took great faith to Abraham to believe it. His faith is described for us in verse 17. It says, in hope... He believed against hope in order that he should become the father of many nations. In hope, he believed against hope. It was a radical thing for him to believe. There were so many things against him, so many things which could, could cause him discouragement. And yet, listen to the description of his faith in verse 19. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. And the point is this, Abraham didn't look to the human circumstances, but to God. It would have been easy to think, okay, I'm a hundred. I'm guessing there's a, um, a connotation of his body. I'm guessing at a hundred years old, you're probably not that sexually active anymore. Um, so, yeah, someone will have to let me know about that. But um, his body's fallen to bits. He's as good as dead. He could have been easily discouraged. How is this going to work? How is this going to come to pass? But from God's perspective, because he's righteous by faith, no unbelief made him waver 
concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why faith was counted to him as righteousness. Scripture tells us that Abraham looked to God. He endured as seeing him who is invisible. He kept his eyes not on his circumstances, but on his creator. He saw the barrenness of Sarah's womb, and that's just like the earth. It's just like the earth to Abraham. Uh, you know, it was, it was void, and darkness was over the face of it, but God breathed upon it, recreated it, and brought out life into that situation. And he had no doubt that that same creator God could do this just as easily with Sarah, his wife. He didn't doubt God's promises, but he believed them. And you might think, well, what a fantastic example of faith Abraham was. But in some ways, what God has asked you and I to believe is more difficult than what he asked Abraham. You see, I'm guessing by the fact that you're here this morning, you probably have more health than Abraham had. Your body, it might feel like it, but it's probably not as good as dead just yet. Uh, You might be fit as a fiddle, some of you, this morning. But spiritually, spiritually, we're not just as good as dead. The Bible tells us we are dead. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says you're dead in trespasses and sins. You're far more dead than Sarah's womb ever was. You're spiritually dead. You're unable to respond to God. In order to bring forth fruit, you must be recreated. You must be born again, raised from the dead by the power of the Spirit. It's no less a miracle when someone becomes a Christian. It's no less a miracle than what Abraham experienced. And it becomes a challenge for us to believe it, doesn't it? The law, as we read, that condemns us. Our conscience condemns you. The people of this world condemn you. Everything from from a human perspective just looks like a a non-starter. It doesn't look like we should be saved and, and be heirs of heaven and be with God forever. But in the gospel, that is exactly what God calls us to believe. To believe in everything he says about us. To believe he loves us as much as his word says he does. To be able to say, God says it, I believe it, that settles it. You know, some of you might find that easier than me, but I think that's a difficult thing. It's easy, but it's also difficult, isn't it? So we're to grow strong in faith, just like Abraham's example fully assured of all Jesus will do for us. Um, in fact, the writer to the Hebrews makes the same point to those who've believed. In, in Hebrews 11, uh, 10, 22, he says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So it's not by the difficulties, it's not by all these, these uh, things which would cause us to doubt. It's by, by looking to the one who is faithful. That's how our faith can grow as strong as Abraham's. And let me tell you, it'll make for a much more comfortable ride if you have a strong faith. But a weak faith will still save you. Uh, you imagine the night of the Passover. I'm stealing this from an old booklet I saw years ago. But you rem- if you just think of the night of the Passover... There's two families, and both of them have slain the lamb, and they've put the blood on the door, and there's one family, you know, they've got feet up by the fire, they're cozy and warm, they're rejoicing, God's going to bring us out of Israel, this is going to be awesome, you know, can't wait to see him humiliate the gods of Egypt and, you know, destroy Pharaoh's armies and bring us into the promised land, this is awesome. 
And then there's another family next door. Yep, the blood's on the door. They're not stupid. They've still put it there. And But they're sat and they're shivering. They're saying, oh, that the angel of death will pass through the land tonight. And I'm worried. I'm worried that the firstborn isn't going to be safe. I'm worried that God's going to take exception because I've, I've not been behaving myself. I've been naughty. Now, which one of those families was more safe? Well, the answer is that they were both equally safe because the blood of the lamb was on the door. They had their faith in the right place. And so, yes, we look at the example of Abraham. We're called to grow strong in faith and, and in, enjoy all that God's done for us. But even a weak faith which looks to Jesus, which puts its faith in the right place, it will bring you to heaven safe and sound. But it will make for a much less comfortable ride. So let me just ask you a few questions as we, as we close. Have you given up hope in any human rituals or personal obedience to make you right with God? Do you know what the Apostle Paul means when he says that through the law, I died to the law? Have you given up all hope in your own righteousness and trusted in Jesus alone? If not, let me encourage you to do that today. Don't put it off any longer there's freedom and rest and joy in the gospel of Jesus Christ if you have trusted him which I trust most of you have are you like Abraham not giving place to unbelief not considering sin and weakness and failure but growing strong in faith and giving glory to God fully convinced that he's able to do what he has promised to you if you've trusted him enough to save you, why not go the whole, whole hog and just throw yourself fully upon him and just think, yeah, I'm going to be joyful as well. I'm going to rejoice in hope of the glory of God. I'm not going to be like a, a sickly passenger on the ark. I'm going to rejoice that it's going to reach its destination. Why not resolve with God's help to grow to the full assurance of faith in the power of the Spirit, looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, the one whom Paul describes in verse 25 who was delivered up because of our offences and was raised because of our justification. It's in looking to Jesus that we find hope and peace and joy. So let me commend that to you today. If you haven't done it, look to him uh, once and for all. If you have looked to him, continue to look to him and he is able to sustain you. Amen. <laughs>